This episode of Policing Matters is sponsored by Utility Inc., the innovative technology-enabled service provider recognized for creating groundbreaking digital systems for frontline professions in effectively collecting, analyzing, and managing digital media evidence. You are listening to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, welcome back. And I've got a great topic today that's very timely. Uh, you've seen the news reports, the media reports about uh, cops either forcing their way in. Uh, we've seen uh, the the results from that and, and the scrutiny of no-knock warrants and, and all the other issues that, that are uh, associated with. Say you respond to a call of a barricaded man with a gun in a single family home in your city. You respond with others and you set up a perimeter. After a few minutes, your sergeant tells you, uh, pull down the outer perimeter, allow traffic to resume, and everybody on scene return to patrol. Wait, what? Is this the policy in your jurisdiction? A description of the policy can be found in the links in show notes. Recently, the Los Angeles Police Department SWAT personnel discussed tactical concepts and challenges, risk analysis, command and control, and much more for barricaded suspects and hostage rescue operations at the 2022 National Tactical Officers Association Conference in September. Uh, my editor, Greg Fries, wrote an article. The link is below as well. One of the uh, issues that they talk about is having a walk away or go away policy. A man with a gun in his home threatening suicide isn't necessarily a tactical team response. If there isn't a criminal act or outstanding warrant, attempt negotiation and counseling, but the eventual tactical plan might be to go away. Our guest today has investigated this practice. He's helped develop training on the benefits and detriments to such a practice of allowing a barricaded subject to remain. Scott Savage is an active duty law enforcement officer in California. His previous assignments include SWAT, full-time assignment to a terrorism intelligent task force, team leader on a crisis negotiation team, field supervisor, and incident commander. He is the founder of the Savage Training Group, a private law enforcement training organization, and Scott's primary area of focus is the way the police respond to critical incidents in crisis situations. Hey, welcome to Policing Matters, Scott Savage. Jim, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've read your articles. I've seen your webinars and your trainings on so many critical incidents and issues before law enforcement officers today. As I mentioned in today's introduction, the practice of leaving a barricaded suspect behind, armed in some cases, is nuanced. What have you seen along those lines policy-wise? Uh, I would say the number one thing I've seen as we're traveling around the country and providing training on this topic is that most agencies do not have a policy. So this is a high-risk, high-liability maybe moderate frequency event. Folks don't have a policy for this. So we're really leaving the decision-making to stay to go to make entry or not to the on-scene personnel, which could depend on 
the whim of the incident commander, the training, the experience level of the incident commander, uh, emotions. So there's a lot um, that's being left to chance because agencies simply don't have policies. Uh, we've collected some policies from agencies around the country. I think we've got about 12 of them so far that we make available to students in our training. And um, really it's coming down to trying to help officers understand whether or not they have a duty, a legal duty uh, to make entry and, and save this person from himself, whether or not they're gonna be liable if the officers do disengage and then uh, that subject inside ends up harming a third party, right? looks outside and becomes homicidal or family member, whether the officers will be liable. And then what is the process we use to make that decision? Yeah. So, think uh, heads up agencies sort of progressive agencies around the U.S. are uh, realizing that we need to do something about this. We need to draft policies. Uh, I don't know about you, but at, at my police agency, we have a policy for everything, including foot pursuits, which say things like consider the weather, which sounds silly. You know, it's raining outside. I'll, I'll discontinue my foot pursuit. But I think we have a policy for everything under the sun. It, it kind of boggles the mind why we wouldn't have something for dealing with a mentally ill in crisis who are armed and don't want to cooperate because uh, certainly in the jurisdiction that, that I come from, and I know Jim very well, the, the jurisdiction you come from, we deal with a lot of mentally ill people in crisis, right? And so this is not kind of a, a reason for event. This happens kind of often. And so the, the trends I'm seeing is that folks uh, don't have a policy. And, and the other trend is really uh, mass confusion about this topic. Um, I think officers sort of intuitively in, in this day and age know we should probably disengage from the armed suicidal barricaded suspect who or subject who doesn't want to come out. But when you ask them questions like, well, are we going to be liable if this happens? Or what are we legally obligated to do? Or, hey, what's that special relationship? turn all about what's their struggle they really struggle to uh explain that so um it's unfortunate because i think as cops we just want to help people right we're, we're there we hey man we want to get this guy the help he needs and in years past uh we have tried to have care on those people right like kicking in their door and i guess pointing guns at them and saying we're here to help you which maybe sounds asinine but that's very much what we used to do and uh, I think everyone's trying to do the right thing, but there's just a lot of confusion because um, in the police academy, they didn't talk about these things, right? We didn't talk about the duty doctrine or special relationships or, or any of that stuff because we were just there to help everyone. And so I, I think now, uh, given the criminal exposure officers are facing, as well as the civil exposure we've always faced, I think we need to become uh, very clear on what we're going to do, create policies, get some good training. Uh, and then make sure everyone's on the same page so that officers around the country can uh, make good decisions. Yeah, it, it's not new. The situation is not new. We've been dealing with this for years and years and years. I could recall a situation probably 10 years ago where uh, on the late nights, maybe it was midnights, uh, we got called, we in, in command were called uh, asking for a full-blown call out of SWAT and all the gear and everything. And a perimeter had been set up, radio cars all around. And uh, 
the chief said, uh, did anybody knock on the door? Did anybody talk to the guy in the house? And the answer was no. So, you know, we've gone run this gamut of no response to everybody come bring out all the equipment full blown before knowing any of the basic facts. Have you seen um, a matrix or some sort of checklist that would give first responders, first responding officers, an idea of where they're at. Like, um, where did the call come from? How credible is the threat? Are there firearms? Uh, did somebody knock on the door? Has anybody talked to the suspect? What, 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 you, yeah. what have you seen? Yeah, so it really, uh, every department around the US is, is different in the way they approach these situations, but I've never seen a uh, standard matrix to make decisions in what I would call non-criminal barricades. So, uh, you know, we at the Savage Training Group created one and it's uh, pretty darn simple. Uh, we think cops do a great job of investigating the call, right? Getting on scene, developing information, what, figuring out what do we have here, uh, determining whether a crime's been committed, trying to offer services to the person, uh, do a great job with all the tactical pieces, you know, setting a perimeter, keeping people out, any hostages from entering and, and this becoming a hostage problem, getting incident command posts. Folks do a great job with that. It really, I think where the confusion is, is should we leave? Should we make entry? And if we are gonna leave specifically, how are we gonna do that? And if we are gonna leave, what are we telling people, right? What are we telling the neighbors? Hey, am I gonna be safe to go back inside my house? Or the family that says, so can I go back in? Or a uh, brother that says, hey, the minute you guys leave, I'm running in there. Yeah, you know, those kinds of things where it gets a little bit mm, iffy on the whole liability thing. So um, we created this decision-making process that is very simple. It's nothing fancy. And I'm sure there's too many people out there that can make something 10 times better. But I kind of think that more simple process is not these are it seems to work the best. So process goes like this. If, if you're on scene of a non-criminal barricade, meaning uh, some barricaded in a structure or a vehicle or somehow has a position of advantage that we don't feel super comfortable going up to this person right away, and they haven't committed a crime. They are uh, the only want, so to speak, is we want to take them on a mental health hold or we have the legal authority to take them on a household. So it's a non-criminal barricade. If, if that's true, and uh, reasonable negotiations have failed, meaning we've tried to negotiate, we allowed him on cell phone, text, social media, whatever. We've given it a college try and the person either refuses to cooperate or won't even pick up the phone, but we've, we've tried to get this person out through our normal means we've been doing for years. The risk to a third party is either none or acceptable, meaning there literally is no other third party inside. We've, we've, we're comfortable that we've verified that, or it's an acceptable risk to the third party, meaning it's a person inside who doesn't want to cooperate, right? It's the girlfriend says, I'm not coming out. We said, no, we really think you should come out. You know, the guy's got the gun, well, let us handle it. She goes, I'm not coming out. Okay, well, we can't compel her to come out. So that's an acceptable, I suppose, for lack of a better word, risk to her. If those are true, the last kind of thing to look at is are, are other tactical options warranted? 
Meaning we have ways of getting people out of homes, right? We could introduce gas. We could, gee, with armored vehicles now, we could dismantle the home around them, I suppose, right? We have ways of kinetically getting people out. But is it warranted? And, and in the case of a non-criminal barricade, meaning there is no associated crime, uh, the courts have been very, very clear that any use of force on someone has to be weighed against that person's interest to privacy, right? Their constitutional right to be left alone. It has to be balanced versus, you know, against the government's interest in what we're trying to accomplish. And in the case of a non-crime, our governmental interest is very, very low. We're simply trying to offer some care, take them to the hospital versus the person's privacy right. And in the home, it is extremely high. Mm-hmm. So any force we use has to be balanced against that. And using something like a SWAT team against a person who hasn't committed a crime or armored vehicles to dismantle their home or that gas that we're going to put in to make the atmosphere untenable where they're going to run out. Uh, we would lose that 10 times out of 10. So if there has been no crime committed, uh, the rest of the third party is acceptable or not. We've tried reasonable negotiations. They failed and other tactical options are unwarranted. Disengage. Disengage. And so it's kind of the matrix we came up with. Nothing fancy, but it's based on law. Uh, and it's uh, based on all the case law that's out there talking about duty and liability. And so folks that have, come in, in the training or taking that and using it in the field with, with a lot of success. And I don't, I, it sounds melodramatic, but I think, I think it's saving lives. It's preventing violent confrontations between uh, officers and people who are mentally ill because none of us uh, take any pleasure in getting to a shooting uh, with a guy who's mentally ill. You know? Right. Yeah. So, but, at some point we're taking a leap of faith unless we've actually gone in and done a search of the building we're we're taking a leap of faith on the assumption there is no one else inside the building you know barring somebody who came out and said look i was the only other person in there uh you know we get the call of a neighbor calling says hey my neighbor in his bathrobe comes out with an ar strapped across his back he's looking around he's aiming it up up at the up at the sky and then he grabs his newspaper and goes back inside is there any sort of technology that we can use that can be part of the evaluation um throw i'm thinking things like a drone or throw phone or or something like that Uh, have you seen anything like that being used to to make that you know due diligence more tangible i think that you know the having so many Departments around the U.S. that have drone programs right now, I think, is a game changer. Whether it's using drones as first responders or in like instance like this, where we can insert some piece of equipment, some piece of technology, can give us information. I think that'd be great. So, you know, I found that you know police officers are around the U.S. are great at locating people, determining intel, you know, verifying information. So. You know, I would say officers at this type of scene, do your normal due diligence. What, what would you normally do to see if anyone else is inside? Well, let's run a premise history on the house and see who, who's been contacted there. Let's check this um, in some sort of law enforcement database to expose who is uh, significant others are, children or, or that type of thing. Um, can we get cell phones for those people and try to geolocate them or call them or place them elsewhere? 
Um, can we geolocate the subject? Are we sure he's still in there? Are we talking on the phone to some guy who's actually standing down the street? Hmm. We could ping his phone. And I think using yeah, like a, a robot or a uh, drone to see inside someone's home, great idea. And, you know, if just if we get a call of a guy on a canal uh, walking down there and he's got a gun and we put a drone up and he shoots at the drone, good. That's great information. We know that's a real gun and he has hostile intent. Um, so we need a drone in the house to, I think, to check and see if it's, um, you know, some of our ability is not going to see everything, but take a look around, I think is, is a good idea. Again, you know, how are we going to get the drone in? Windows, you know, if it's kind of vague information about what happened in there, maybe no. Saw the guy with a gun demonstrating hostile intent. He's saying, hey, don't come in here, I'll kill everybody. Okay, I'm totally good with, with breaking his windows and, and throwing the drone in there. But, you know, I suppose that the, the one thing to remember when you're choosing tactics is our tactics should be informed by strategy and, and the plan. Plan here is we are on a rescue mission. We're trying to render aid. This isn't a climb here. And I would just say for folks that go, you know what, I would never leave unless I can prove no one else was inside. I would just re remind them that Without a special relationship bond with that person inside, the courts have been very clear. The police don't have an affirmative duty to provide police protection to an individual inside the home who is you know, later harmed by that, that, that subject. So you know, you, once you understand that, you may feel a little bit more comfortable leaving because you're going, you know what, we do everything we can to figure out it's leave not. And we understand the law that says we actually don't have a duty to protect that person if someone was concealed inside and if that person yeah. you know, suffered this hypothetical harm. So really, really, once you understand the law, I think rules of the game, then all the tactics kind of, kind of fall into place because they get informed by that information. Mm -hmm. I would imagine that it the policies vary by agency, but uh, in your experience, who makes the ultimate decision whether to stay or leave? Um, what I've seen is uh, first line supervisors making a decision, which is uh, sergeants. You know, and you know this is going to happen in the middle of the night, and you know this is going to happen on the weekend when the junior sergeants. So you know that's all going to happen because we have terrible luck as cops, and so even more reason. <laughs> Even more reason to go get some training to think about this stuff ahead of time. Let's not leave it to a very, you know, stressed out, perhaps uh, lesser experienced sergeant trying to figure out, oh my word, what do we do, you know, in this situation? So, you're what I what I do see is a discrepancy. However, is the folks that come to our training classes are generally sergeants, some lieutenants, and officers, right? SWAT teams, negotiators, and patrol folks. And they always say, man, this is great, but my chief doesn't get it. You know, this is great, but my captain doesn't get it. And they're, maybe the captain and the chief are still thinking, you know, how we used to do things back in the old days, which I was there. I remember doing all those things too, where we kicked in the guy's door to go save him. And so it's, I think, imperative that everybody's on the same page. And let's get everybody up on the law and the tactics so that everyone is just following uh and let's not leave out the officers however because a young officer if you're listening to this and you're thinking well that sounds like surgeon kind of 
you know, instant command type citizens. It's not something I have to worry about. Okay, but think about this. If you're first on scene and you make contact with this guy or you go in the house or you overcommitted and we've gotten to something with this person, it can totally dictate how the rest of the call is going to go because now it's not a non-criminal barricade. Now he pointed a gun at you or now we've been in, we've been some forts on and we feel now we're really running or he fled, you know, so in the house with a gun is bad, but the guy who's not in the house anymore is running through the neighborhood because you scared him away with your siren and whatever. It's even worse. So it's really incumbent on everybody to kind of understand the laws, the tactics, the policy, the mission, like what we're trying to accomplish here. Yeah, I want to get into the liability factors and chain of command. But uh, first, I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Utility provides a universe of intuitive solutions for effectively capturing, analyzing, managing, and sharing video evidence. Technologies include a variety of cameras, sensors, devices, as well as situational awareness software solutions for law enforcement, first responders, transportation agencies, and utility providers. To learn more about utility and its technology solutions, visit utility.com. That's U-T-I-L-I-T-Y dot com. And we're back and I'm speaking with Scott Savage, active duty law enforcement officer and founder of the Savage Training Group. Okay, we go into the incident described in my opener. We are satisfied that the individual is alone and will not menace the neighborhood. What about the next officer responding next week or a month uh, later? Will the location be tagged for future calls to that residence to dispatch? Um, how are we going to make sure that that officer, the, the, the next responding officer, has enough information? Great point, because even if we disengage, you know, now, are we just handing this off with the problem to the next oncoming shift? In other words, you know, day shift comes on and he's doing hand So, well, he's got a real problem over on Main Street. But now he's really high as a time. He's really, you know, be disengaged. So, we're covered. You guys go deal with it. Or, like you mentioned, a week later, some patrol officer goes out, has no idea there was this big melee out there. You can pass on, you know, perimeters and compose that that was on the VAR or whatever. So, Pretty easy solution to that is write a police report. When you disengage, write a police report. Detail all the stuff you did. So if you found mom's phone number and she lives out of state and the neighbor's phone numbers and you talked to the guy and he said X, Y, and Z, or you figured out what his social media is and you were you know, maybe looking at that as you're trying to get intel about this person, document all those things. Document what you told this person. Document how many times you offered him care. You know. I remember being on scene of incidents like this and every time uh, our negotiator or whoever, whatever officer we were having speak with them, every time we attempted a phone call in, we would log that. Every text we sent to this guy, log that. Every, okay, hey, uh, radio, log into the call. We just did uh, 10 minutes of loud hailing, right? We're going to show all of the efforts we took to uh, offer de-escalation to this person to for a peaceful resolution and their reactions to it. This person said, screw you guys. I don't want your help. 
could vinegar all kill you. Let's document all that stuff, everything you learned about them and your decision to disengage, document that. You know, after careful consideration, uh, we determined no crime had been committed at this time. The uh, risk of making entry seemed to outweigh the benefits due to uh, violent confrontation for the make entry as evidenced by the fact the subjects and if you come in here, I'll kill you. Um, so the decision was made by such and such to disengage. And if you want sort of an added little bonus or an added little uh, thing you can do, here's the re-engagement plan. You know, disengage is one thing, what are we doing to re-engage this person? Because perhaps if he's uh, in a crisis state or he's uh, high or drunk, maybe that will reduce uh, as time goes by. So the re-engagement plan is that we contacted mental health services. We contacted the person's doctor or the family said they're going to go check on him in a day or two. You know, let's not make promises to the family. We can talk about avoid special relationships, but the family said that they're going to go do this thing. Having that documented, assuming access to this history, previous things that have happened at that premise, associated with that person's name, and they can pull that up and go, oh, okay, I guess we've been out here before. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. Here's the concerns. Here's all the intel. Here's mom's phone number. Here's the doctor's phone number. So, just a, it's no fun to write these kind of police reports. So uh, in the future. Mm, okay. Yeah. And I think, and I would assume most of our listeners, uh, uh, frontline officers are thinking about the liability issues, right? They get there. Maybe the sergeant doesn't come out. Uh, maybe it's a small agency where, you know, your sergeant is miles away, rural agency. And they say, okay, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? Okay, pack it up, take off. Uh, I'm sure in the back of the mind of most officers, they're thinking, okay, if something happens, I'm on the hook for this. What What are the protections for that officer? Yeah, in the U.S., and I can't speak for uh, anywhere outside of the United States, but in the U.S., um, the easiest way to understand what uh, your legal obligation is to people is to Google something called the public duty doctrine. And if you're in California, the public duty doctrine, California, Google that. If you're in Wisconsin, Google from Wisconsin. Really, every state has uh, some version of this doctrine uh, on the books. And it is also a, a federal standard based on a lot of case law. When I say a lot of case law, this isn't something recent. The earliest uh, duty doctor case I could find um, as it relates to the police is from 1855 in a case called South v. Maryland. Um, so this has been something that's been on the books for forever. Um, the most often cited public duty doctrine case is uh, Warren versus District of Columbia. Shaney versus Winnebago County. That's a, another often cited case, but what do all these cases say? They say that the police don't have an affirmative duty to provide police protection to individuals, but rather the duty owed by the police is to the public at large. And I'm in a special relationship between a and police, no specific legal duty exists. Legal duty to do what? Legal duty to protect, legal duty to warn, legal duty to prevent harm to a third party. 
So uh, basically what those laws have codified year after year after year is that officers don't have this affirmative duty to go protect Mike from Sally or to go to stop harm from the person who's barricaded in their house to prevent all harm that this person would ever create. Uh, we have no responsibility to prevent private violence is another way it's, it's described. So what does that mean? Uh, well, go look up some of those cases. You'll, you'll be surprised. And you'll notice that they all say something along the lines of absent a special relationship between that person where you've created a duty. Um, the two easiest ways to understand a special relationship or how that's created between the police and a private individual is where the police make a representation, either express or implied, um, is detrimentally relied upon and here it occurs. It's legalese for saying when you make a promise to someone and they rely on that promise. Example would be, hey, um, your house just got broken into and you know, stole your keys. Don't worry. Um, you'll be safe here tonight. You know, you can call locksmith in the morning. I'll conduct passing checks. You'll be safe here. And then they're not safe here. And somebody breaks into the home and causes them harm. Uh, the officers would then be a found to create a special relationship, which is the real case. Mm -hmm. uh, so creating a special relationship generally involves making promises. So if you were to promise the family, don't worry, don't worry. We will go into that house and arrest him or take him on a, a mental health hold and we will render the maid. And the family says, okay, thank you. I will rely on you. I won't try to rescue my, my loved one. I won't try to render aid. I'll rely on what the police said. Let's say you don't do it and the person harmed themselves. Well, you've made a promise to that other individual. Um, the second way, so making promises that are detrimentally relied upon is first way. The second way is when uh, the officer engages in an affirmative act that increases risk to a person and that person is there for harmed. Um, so the person's suicidal, they're in their home and you send in a bigger gun and you send in a bunch of booze and a bigger gun. You've increased risk to that person. That's a way. Simply arriving on scene or speaking with someone will trigger the special relationship. And in the training that we do, we provide you know examples of each case. You know, here's here's Reagan versus City of Sunnyvale that talks about mere proximity or making contact isn't good enough to trigger a special relationship. And here's cases where special relationships have occurred. And here's a non-criminal barricade case where they did a special relationship and and they were successfully sued and. And folks often say, well, gee, you know, I, it sounds like there's some civil liability here if I created that special relationship. Yeah, that's true. For instance, um, let's say the guy, he's in the house and he pumps his head out and he's holding a weapon and we shot him with a less lethal round and he disappears back in the house. Now, do we have a special relationship with that person? Well, yeah, we increased risk to him. We shot him with a less lethal round. He's injured. So then do we have an affirmative duty to, to protect, to offer care? Yes, we do. How are we going to accomplish that? Now the guy's barricaded in his house saying, you'll never take me alive. Now you guys shot me. I'm even more upset with you. So we have a special relationship. Are we then going to force entry to go? Oh, because civil exposure is a lot different, Jim, than criminal exposure. You know, if, if we say, well, gosh, we created a special relationship. Now go kick in the guy's door to render an aid. The, the aid he doesn't want. We end up doing a shooting. Now we've probably created some criminal exposure because of a, a legal doctrine known as state-created jeopardy. 
officer created danger, right? So it's it's really just understanding a public duty doctrine says as a general rule, and there's, there's exceptions, you don't have an affirmative duty to provide police protection to the individual inside or the family member. And then understanding how do we how do we get how do we accidentally get rid of that protection? It's when we create special relationships and oftentimes it's from what we say. You know, it's the promises we make to people, it's what we tell people. Uh, and officers, honestly, when they're being found uh, liable, civilly or criminally, it's what they're doing, committing, not for what they're omitting. I'm not seeing case after case where officers are found um, civilly liable for walking away. In fact, they can't find one. What they're being found liable for, criminally and civilly, is doing stuff, making entry, going forward, kicking in the door, using force. It's the commission of, of versus the omission. Right, right. The active um, active participation. <clears throat> so a uh, new agency says we want to adopt a policy. Where do they go? Where do they start? Uh, like all policies, nobody should ever reinvent the wheel. Chances are somebody else has done it already. What's your recommendation to that agency? Yeah, I would. Um, so we certainly have collected, I think it's around 10 at this point, um, different policies from around the country. But, you know, so I'm in California, we have some from California, but certainly outside of California. And each one's a little different, but they all include some pretty good stuff. I would say the policy needs to include the following. So you can come to our training and, and we'll, you know, give you these policies. But if, if you're not, and you're just going to create your own, I think you need to um, modify and what officers are legally required to do or not because it's the number one hurdle to get over codify in, in your policy how to avoid creating special relationships and, and what those triggers are um, so this is work that needs to be done with your city or county attorney right you need, they need to be helping you craft this policy so what do we have to do what are we legally required to do and then um what's the kind of the pitfall with a special relationship there and this will help officers differentiate you between a policy obligation, a legal obligation, a moral obligation, right? And so, um, you know, nothing, that public duty doctrine says that the police technically don't have to, you know, make entry on an active shooter, you know, technically speaking. It's the average patrol officer doesn't have a special relationship with the children inside. Now, the legal obligation, Certainly, certainly, morally, all going to go in and make entry there. But it's important as you start thinking about tactics that we understand what we're legally required to do versus what we're morally obligated to do. Those are two different things. And when you're on scene of these types of non-criminal barricades, you got to be clear on those so that you can make very clear-headed decisions influenced by emotion. So once you've got your laws in place and your policy, Talk about what the mission is on something like this, which is a non-criminal barricade. This is not a uh, criminal apprehension, tactical operation. This is a rescue. This is a uh, more akin to a medical call. Um, talk about the tactics officers should use, which could be the same for every barricade. We're going to set up containment. We're going to set up point and observation, you know, view of the house. We're going to set up a react team in case it it did go active or he grabbed a hostage and then there was you know imminent peril with the hostage we're going to have an incident command post and a negotiator okay. basics for any kind of barricade 
talk about how we want to use negotiators, specially trained people, this person. We often think of negotiators as well. We call them out when it's the big hostage you know, situation. No, no, no. These people have a ton of training. Let's get them involved in this call, this patrol call. Then put in some kind of decision-making process like we talked about earlier that'll help guide the decision-making on scene. And then talk about, um, we want you to write a police report, document everything you did, and then whatever re-engagement plan would make sense for your agency. So if you have a mobile mental health team or you, you have um, behavioral health detectives, I suppose, for lack of a better word, some internal team that works on these types of stuff, CMT officers, who can you, who can you bounce this report to so that they can get some follow-up tomorrow or next week or whatever? Because the thing about what we've talked about so far is solve the problem. We haven't solved any problem, if you think about it. All we've done is limit liability and prevent a violent confrontation between the police and that person inside. And I remember one incident in particular when I was, uh, we were on scene of a non-criminal barricade. The guy's in there, he's, he's in the basement, he's breaking everything up. He doesn't want to come out. I say to the family, do you want prosecution for the stuff he's breaking in there? He's like a 22-year-old son or whatever. Said, nope. Okay, so we kind of have a non-criminal barricade there. And we made the decision to leave after we went through all that process I was telling you about. And, and I'm talking to the mom, and she's disappointed. And she's pissed, you know, because the, I called the police, and what are you guys good for? What am I supposed to do now? And I had to have a little heart-to-heart with her and say, listen, I'm really sorry. I wish there was something we could do that would achieve the goal of taking your son to the hospital. But here's the thing. We have tried everything we can. And by your own admission, your son is armed, mentally ill, non-med compliant, and high on drugs and armed with a baseball bat. And he's in the basement. So if I put my officers in there, they got to have their guns out to protect themselves. And they're going to close distance with your son. And she says, well, I don't want you to shoot him. I said, well, we don't want to shoot him either. And unfortunately, I can't think of anything to do that um, wouldn't involve a high likelihood of a violent confrontation with your son. And so we're going to leave. I know that's disappointing to you, but it's the only thing I can think to do right now that ensures we won't kill your son. Right. And I think you need to have kind of honest conversations with people like that and just mm-hmm. They'll say, hey, I'm really sorry, because I can't imagine what it's like to live with someone who's mentally ill. So my heart goes out to you, but um, I don't know anything else to do because we're just the police. We're not superheroes. We're not um, the answer to everything. We're just the police and uh, can't think of anything else to do. And so we're going to leave because that's the one thing we can do that ensures we're not going to shoot it. Don't know what's going to happen after we leave. Can't make you promises that you'll be safe. I can't tell you to go back in there. But I'm also not going to prevent you from going back in there to render aid to your son. Um, we're not going to be here. And I encourage you to call 911 if, if a new emergency develops. And in the training we do, we provide a script that you can read to people. And, you know, does it, is it kind of sad that we have to do stuff like this? Yes. Is it frustrating to officers who think this is nonsense? We've got to get in there. We got to do something. I agree. I, I totally agree with the thought process there but unfortunately in this day and age in this litigious day and age um if you decide to kick in a guy's door who is not wanted for a crime who you've already established is armed and you know there's a high likelihood of a violent confrontation because you're entering with your gun out you know this is dangerous 
if you end up getting a shooting with this guy, um, that's going to be a challenging thing to explain how you didn't create the exigency. That's going to be challenging to explain how your pre-shooting conduct uh, uh, is reasonable, given the fact that this person, there is no associated crime. Just think back to your academy training, your, your gram factors from, you know, from the gram case. Crime, threat, resistance, escape, or evasion. C-tree, crime, threat, resistance, escape, evasion. Think there's no crime. You know, and the, the severity of the threat, which is often said is the most important part of the gram factors, uh, high threat, but a con it's contingent upon you entering the house. Mm -hmm. So you're outside, there is no, you know, immediate threat to you and you're, you went in and created one. When you start thinking about it in these terms, you can see how quickly, gosh, this would really fall apart in court. And so um, just, just don't get captured by emotion in these types of things. Think logically, think analytically and start with what are the rules? What am I legally obligated to do? or not, let's start with that. What's the policy say? If we don't have one, let's get one. And uh, let's make decisions that are based on law and reason and not emotion. Yeah. You know, that situation, that scenario that you describe, it's got to resonate with so many officers listening. There's so many variations on that theme, right? The somebody, a relative calls about somebody who's in crisis, um, but just as you describe, right? And and the idea that you're going to go in and solve the problem, get them back on meds or take them to the hospital, I guess that's their wish. But just as you said, the, the game changes once they go into the room and shut the door, then you've got a box of chocolates behind the door, right? You don't know if they've armed themselves, if they're going to attack and, and officers have to be able to defend themselves. I think in, in a situation like this, the public really needs to be informed of this policy because it, it seems counterintuitive that when you call 911 and the police come and after an evaluation, they say, hey, you know, we've really decided that if we press on, something bad's going to happen, so we're going to leave. I think the reaction from the public is not going to be a good one, especially an uninformed public. So we need to get this policy out. I think um, PERF and IACP and, and all the state posts need to make um, some something uh, for the public to digest, to understand this, this concept. You're right. And it has to be, it has to be explained in nuanced terms and you, you have to explain it and convey that you're being sensitive to what's going on here, right? So if you just say, well, we're leaving, Enough, you know, because you know, the law says we don't have to do anything. Well, yeah, you're not going to make a lot of friends in the public there. I think you need someone to explain it who understands these things and explain it in a sensitive way. Like I, if I had a mentally ill family member, I called my local police department and they don't solve the problem. And yeah, I'm going to be pretty darn upset. So, you know, we need, we need to explain this stuff and tell our story. And it's not, we're not, um, you know, this, also, anything could be taken too far, right? We need to make sure people understand we're not saying we're going to disengage from everything, right? If this guy is a serious criminal and he's barricaded in the house, it's game time. Now, we have ways of getting that guy out. We have proven tactics. We'll set containment and we will try to negotiate and then we'll use 
a lot of different tactical options to get that guy out and get him in custody. So we're talking about a very, very specific set of circumstances here, right? If there's an imminent threat to a third party or he's wanted for a crime, man, this stuff doesn't apply. Mm. That's a really different thing. So um, officers need to understand that too. And, and also we need to make sure we're not, let's not put, let's not get ahead of ourselves. As, as some young officers I hear, they say, well, you know, if we're just going to disengage at the end, why don't we just not even go, you know, or, or they uh, tell their sergeant when they get back from training, well, you know, this, this training group said that I have an affirmative duty to do anything. So hey, Sarge, I'm not going to go to half of these calls anymore. Well, you want to have a job because you still have a policy duty to respond to calls. So don't take anything out of context. Don't take it too far. Um, this is for one type of incident and one type of incident only. And, and also, too, if, if you as a tactician on scene, you're the on scene decision maker and you understand all this stuff, you understand law, you understand what modern police agencies are doing, and you make the decision to kick in the guy's door to go, quote, save him from himself. Hey, that's your decision to make. That, that's not for, for me to make or, or our training. We're just giving you facts and giving you the information. Ultimately, you're on scene, you make the decision, right? If the guy is in a vehicle. He's not in his house. He's in a vehicle out in a school parking lot in front of kindergarten school that's about to let out. He says he wants to kill himself there. Are you going to walk away from that one? Probably not. You know, does the law require, is it any different for, legally speaking? No, it's not legally different because of where he is. There's no special relationship with anyone out there, but you're probably not going to disengage. Let's, let's be honest there. So uh, just, just be able to understand it. And I guess the big takeaway here for folks who are listening is you've got to understand the rules first before you start playing the game. You know, not, to, not that this is a game, but if you look at it, you know, in that analogy, it's like you got to know what the rules are. And oftentimes as cops, we think we've got to do this, we've got to do that. Well, when you hear people say that, just say, who says we got to? No matter what, you hear anyone tell you some other cop, well, we got to do this, otherwise we're going to be liable. Okay, <laughs> where does it say that? Or is that folklore? And if we are, quote, going to be liable, can you show me a case example of that? You know, show me the, the litany of cases that where officers are liable because they didn't do something. You know, you just Googling that, try to find those cases yourself, you know, do, do the research yourself and you'll, you'll quickly find, well, that's, that's just not really the case. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really important that folks understand the rules, be able to explain it. Uh, exercise this stuff because we can have all the policies in the world um, if you aren't trained on them you know if you're just clicking through the policies and saying i acknowledge i acknowledge i acknowledge kind of stuff that's not training that's just a policy so that really doesn't help the folks out there so make sure you uh, whether it's from us or someone else get the training on how to respond in non-criminal barricades because it's uh, your decisions on scene can be life-changing for for both parties right right Hey, it's an important topic. Thanks for spending time and explaining uh, the nuances. Uh, Scott Savage, uh, active duty officer, law enforcement officer, founder of the Savage Training Group. Always good to see what you're writing about and what you're, you're training about. Scott, how can our listeners find you? Uh, easiest way to do it is go on our website, uh, savagetraininggroup.com. If you want to attend our uh, the training that we talked about today, it's called Response to the Non-Criminal Barricade. Uh, we have an online and an in-person version of that. So you can get uh, immediate access online if you just want the information and 
insist all the policies and the laws and the tactics we talked about or you can join us at an in-person class and it'll either be, either be me or one of those instructors teaching there and, and we can really uh, talk about your specific cases that come up and, and how we exercise that stuff and then if you just want to interact with me personally I'm on LinkedIn you can just look me up Scott Savage on on LinkedIn and, and I'd love to connect to you and, and uh, talk to you and talk about uh, police training and responding to crises and trying to make sense of this uh, crazy job we have in, in 2022 being a, going into 2023 being a, being a cops very difficult and so I just want to help cops uh, be successful in that. Right. Hey, thanks again for spending time. Thanks for what you do and for your help uh, with the law enforcement profession. Thanks, Jim. Hey, to our listeners, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing about uh, what Scott Savage is talking about today, about uh, barricaded subjects, uh, non-criminal, non-threatening Find out more, check on the links below and let me know uh, how you feel about today and who you want to hear about and what you want to hear about. Drop me a line at policingmatters at policeone.com. That's policingmatters at policeone.com. All right, stay safe. Good talking to you. Hope to talk to you again real soon. Take good care.